uh, on the 21st of December, which is the fourth week of Advent, and also on the 25th Christmas service. So, just like the theme today, be prepared. And uh, so today I wanted to, to start off with an apology that I wasn't able to preach uh, at the English congregation among you a few weeks ago. I had lost my voice completely on that day. And I don't think you would want a preacher to lead you for 30 minutes silent meditation. So I thank Pastor Don for covering for me on that day. And, and thank God I got my voice back, although not 100%. And, and I also hope the same for the person who is not here, Josanna. <laughs> she has lost her voice for, for what? A month for now, yeah, and I really hope that she will recover and come back and sing in the midst of us. Um, and I guess Ken will start to think that he has hearing problem in her quietness. See him? <laughs> so now back to Advent. And, and this week's theme is preparation. From the literal meaning, the words celebration and preparation would seem unlikely to coexist at the same time. It's because preparation usually occurs before the fact, and celebration takes place after the fact when all is said and done. Then, then why we have a theme of preparation when we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Why do we celebrate Christmas and be prepared? Like how do we do that? The two things, celebration and preparation at the same time. Is Christmas an occasion for celebration or a demand for preparation? Or yet, maybe both. Christmas is a celebration because the word has already become flesh. Because the light of truth has already broken into the darkness. Because the Son of God has already taken on human form. We celebrate Christmas because veiled in flesh, the God has seen, hailed the incarnate deity, pleased as man and with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's why we sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. These are all the reasons why we celebrate Christmas. But, why will we celebrate we still need to be prepared, to be on guard, to be alert. It's because even though we long to see God and sinners reconciled, sin still has its grasp on all of us. Gospel is still being unheard of or worse, rejected in many places on earth. You can tell from the video. It's also because even though we long to see peace on earth, but when we look at places like Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, or South Sudan, peace still seems to be just a wishful thinking. The vision of Christmas is still an already, but not yet. Because we are in between Advents. In this time, between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, we need to be to be prepared for the second as we celebrate the first. So in order to have a, the best preparation, we need to understand for what or for whom we are preparing for. 
Now I'm going to call upon Kathy. Kathy is here, yeah, to lead us to read the passage today about the return of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Well, this passage is not very difficult to understand. During the Last Supper on Passover, Jesus said that he is going to leave, but also promised that he will come back. And he's coming back for us. Well, even if we do not know the cultural background and context of this passage, we should be able to establish our hope between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. But the fact is that Jesus does not only want us to have hope in this passage. If that's all Jesus wants, he could just simply say that he would come back, just like in Revelation chapter 22. Why did he have to mention, have to emphasize, about the many rooms in his father's house, and that he goes there to prepare a place for us. Why? And from the fact that Jesus did not give further explanation to these special descriptions, we can deduce that this must be a familiar cultural context to Jesus' original audience. Unfortunately, none of us is a Jew of the first century, unless we time travel. And thus, we probably, probably do not have a clue of what these cultural elements mean. But when we become familiar with its cultural context, we will definitely have a much better appreciation of what Jesus had to say to us. When Jesus talks about his leaving and returning, most of the time, he is using the Jewish marriage custom in his time as a backdrop for his words. So today, I want to give you more about the background of Jewish marriage custom so that we can comprehend and appreciate Advent better. Moreover, you will find that you have a much better appreciation and perspective towards the Lord's Supper because this passage in John 14 was said by Jesus right after the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal. So now let me briefly introduce to you the key elements of the first century Jewish marriage custom. Then we will come back and use it as a backdrop to understand the passage in John 14. Well, a Jewish marriage in the, in the first century was very different to marriages nowadays. Ancient Jewish marriage began long before the wedding the guy and the girl became husband and wife long before the wedding. It began during a betrothal, or we better know it as engagement, but the 
technical name is betrothal. It's established during a betrothal ceremony in which marriage covenant is written, is prepared, and is signed. Betrothal ceremony has a few elements, very essential elements. First, the father of the groom will choose a bride for his son. In Jesus' time, no girl would or could choose their groom. Even guys would have to let his father to decide for him. And worse, sometimes the father is just too busy or too occupied and will have to delegate this bride-finding task to his servant, as in the case of Abraham. And I wonder if this is why he is called the father of faith. So once a girl is found, the groom's side will make a betrothal offer to the girl's family. This betrothal ceremony must consist of three important procedures. First, the two families will have to agree upon the purchase price of the bride. And sorry, ladies. In that time, women were bought at a price. And you should be thankful, guys. This purchase price serves two purposes. First is to compensate the loss of a member of the workforce in the household for the bride family. And the second, which is more important, is to show how much the man desires the woman. So once the price is agreed upon by both parties, the groom's side and the bride's side will have to sign a marriage covenant. And this marriage covenant is a life-changing covenant for both the man and the woman. Once the covenant is signed, witnessed, and the purchase price is transacted, is received, the father of the bride will make a public declaration that his daughter will from now on be consecrated for her husband and set apart exclusively for him. And once that declaration is made, the man and the woman have legally become husband and wife. So although technically considered legally married and possessing all legal rights and responsibilities of being husband and wife, this couple still must not cohabit together. They must not live together yet. The woman still stays in her own father's house and the man will return to his father and father's house until the wedding day. During this betrothal period, if the man somehow regrets his decision and wants to back out from this marriage covenant, he must follow all legal procedures of divorcing one's wife. As for the woman, she has no right to revoke this marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is an irrevocable contract to the woman. So in Jesus' time, only husband can divorce his wife, not vice versa. If the man dies during the betrothal period, the woman then becomes a widow. Now this betrothal period normally lasts about one year. In the Gospel, Joseph and Mary were in this exact situation when they first appeared. The Gospel of Matthew uh, records, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, which is the wedding day, she was found 
to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. In the originally, original Greek version, what's pledged to be married is just the word betrothed. That's why when Joseph found out that Mary became pregnant during this betrothal period, before they lived together, he would then consider Mary as unfaithful. And thus, she has broken the betrothal covenant. Matthew continues, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. It took a divine message from heaven by an angel for Joseph to be convinced that Mary was not unfaithful and her pregnancy is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So after the bride and the groom signed the betrothal covenant, the betrothal ceremony is still not finished. Jewish rabbis require that in all betrothal ceremony, a ritual called the cup of covenant must be performed at the conclusion of the ceremony. In this cup of covenant, a cup of wine is to be shared by the bride and the groom to seal the betrothal covenant. And this ritual of the cup of covenant has two cups. The first cup was shared at the end of the betrothal ceremony. And then the second cup will be shared about a year later during the wedding ceremony. So now we may gain the perspective why after the Lord's Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the wine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, in my Father's house. This is a marriage custom here. After this ritual of, <coughs> sorry, of the cup of covenant, the men and the women will begin their betrothal period which lasts approximately one year. As I mentioned earlier, during this one-year period, although Jewish law has granted legal marriage status for the couple, it nevertheless prohibits them from living together until the wedding day. So, they will still reside in their own respective home. Because the betrothal ceremony takes place in the home of the woman, the man then will have to leave his bride after the betrothal ceremony and go back to his own father's house until the wedding day that he will return to receive his bride and take her back to his father's house. Now, during this one-year betrothal period, the men and the women have their respective uh, responsibilities. In the first century Jewish society, the woman has her responsibilities as she waits for her groom to return. So according to the law, the woman now legally belongs to her husband. So she will have to be alert and on guard not to put herself into any temptation that she would or could become unfaithful to her returning husband. And moreover, she will have to prepare for her own wedding garment so that she will bring honor to the groom when, she, when he returns. And when the one-year betrothal period is approaching the end, and since the exact date of the coming of the groom is not known, the bride 
will have to regularly make herself clean, including taking bath, anointing with oil, and making clean her wedding garments in order to present herself as clean and without stain to her groom. This is why the Apostle Paul used these languages to describe the bride of Christ, the church. He said, Christ as husband, he will, he will be to make her, the bride, the church, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her, the church, to himself as a radiant church without stain and wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Advent remind us as a church being the bride of Christ in this period that Christ has left but will return, we have got to stay alert and on God because we are a covenantal community with Christ Jesus, so we ought to desire nothing else but Christ coming groom alone. As the faith community in Advent, we need to sing like the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. So, other than the bride, the groom also has his own responsibilities during this betrothal period. When he goes back to his father's house, his primary responsibility is to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. In Jesus' time, they are not like us, that we would have to save money to buy or to put the down payment for a house or apartment to get married. They had no agents taking them around to see open houses and then make an offer for purchase. When a man in ancient Palestine is getting married, he would always, almost always, build a mansion adjacent to his father's estate for his family, just like this picture here. This is a model, but like this is the, the son's mansion. This is the father's house. And this is especially true because most Family members in the ancient time, they are involved in the same single business, especially for farming, livestock, or fishing industry. That's why it's almost a norm that all living generations of a family would, have, would live together in the same household. So the responsibility for the man going back to his father's house is to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. So this context forms the background of the passage today in John 14, the passage we just read. In this passage, Jesus is speaking as if he is making a vow to his bride in the betrothal ceremony. After the groom has left, waiting could be very painful. Sometimes extended waiting can wear down our faith, creating doubt in us. That's why. Our Lord Jesus, before he left, he made us a vow to return based on his holiness and faithfulness. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. He promised that he will come back. He said there is a reason for his leaving. Not only that he has gone to prepare a place for us, but also he promised that he is coming back to receive us, to take us 
back to his father's house. And the verb, this verb receive or take, is based on the original Greek term, take a wife. Jesus will come back to us so that we also may be where he is. You know, this line, you also may be where I am in this passage, is a typical betrothal vow. It's very similar to the meaning of our modern vow, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, till, till death do us part, this kind of vow. You see, Jesus loves us to an extent that he promised us with his divine faithfulness that no matter what future holds, his future will be our future. His eternity will be our eternity. Because this Messiah, this Christ Jesus, in his own grace and mercy, has chosen to enter into a betrothal covenant with us. You know, when Jesus uses a marriage covenant to describe who we are in relationship with him, to us, it means an incomparable, an unsurpassable level of security. As I mentioned earlier, in the first century Jewish society, a bride has no right to revoke a betrothal covenant. A betrothal covenant is, a, is an irrevocable contract for the bride. A woman just simply cannot divorce her husband. Therefore, it means that if we truly believe in Jesus, sincerely follow him and commit ourselves to him in this betrothal covenant, then it is not possible for us to get out of this covenant. In other words, when we truly believe and follow Jesus, meaning that once we are saved, the Holy Spirit, which is also a form of Jesus' betrothal gift to us, the Holy Spirit will always protect us that nothing, nothing, and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. There's nothing we can do to void this covenant with Christ which was granted to us by grace only, grace only in the first place. This is what we know as the confession of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. That's why Jesus once said, My sheep listen, listen to, me, to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And then, listen to this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. And then he continues, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And he repeats, No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. It says here, No one, including ourselves. No matter how vulnerable, how weak, how much of failure we could be, no one will and no one can Snatch us out of his hand. That's security, brothers and sisters. Well, then you might say, well, while the woman cannot revoke, while the woman cannot revoke the betrothal covenant, the man can, right? Yeah. It's true that no one can snatch us out of Christ's hand, but 
What about Christ letting us go from his own hand? Can he? Can he? Yes, he can. But he won't. In this betrothal covenant, we cannot revoke it. And Christ, though he can, will not revoke it. In the book of Malachi, God revealed his own character in this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. And then he continues, it's not included here, but he says, says the Lord Almighty, so be on your God and do not be unfaithful. It is against God's own nature to divorce his bride. Also, the good thing about getting married with God is that he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. The problems of marriage between two human beings is that even when we say for better or for worse, most of the time in a very romantic atmosphere, we have no idea how worse it could be, right? No one is thinking the worst, right? At that moment. Truly, how many couples would, when making a vow, for better or for worse, in that very moment, that they are expecting the worst? Not many, I would say, right? Only in marriages between us humans that we will find out our spouse is not what, I mean, who we expected. Only in marriages between us, humans, would a spouse say to another in shock, Wow, I never knew you were like that. However, an omniscient, all-knowing God in Jesus will never say that. Jesus will never have unrealistic or wrong expectations on us. In fact, he does not even need to expect anything about us. He simply just knows knows us, inside, outside, past, present, and future. That's why in Psalm, the psalmist proclaimed, You, God, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So that's why this God, you know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down and you're familiar with all my ways. Never ever that we can surprise God. He would never say to me in shock, Wow, I never knew you like that. For better or for worse, Jesus knows our worst much better than we know about how worse we could be. When he saw the worst in me, he still decided to come down from his father's house and propose this marriage covenant to me. He will not be surprised when the worst of me comes out. When the worst in me comes out, which it will, I need not be afraid of losing him. Because there's just nothing, nothing in me that he does not know about. So there's never ever a possibility that Jesus will revoke his covenant with us because this covenant was established and sealed with his own life and blood. So after approximately a year passed, 
after the, 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 the betrothal ceremony, when all is prepared, the groom, <coughs> the groom will return to the bride and take her back to his father's house to complete the wedding ceremony. However, the wedding date is not determined by the groom, but by the groom's father. So in such a context, we now can understand better why Jesus said about the time of his return. He said, but about that day of his return, or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Be alert. You do not know. Us, we do not know when the time will come. So, brothers and sisters, in this Advent, when we are awaiting the return of our Messiah, we as a holy covenantal body with Christ Jesus must at all times stay alert and be on guard. That's how we prepare ourselves in advance. In this betrothal period, we prepare ourselves by being alert. As a bride of Christ, we have to be alert and on guard, not to put ourselves into any temptations that we will or could become unfaithful to our returning Messiah. Advent's preparation is to remain consecrated exclusively for Jesus, whom I have in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Our alertness is not because of the fear that our Lord Jesus will forsake us, because he won't, but because of his unconditional love manifested in one starry night 2,000 years ago, that away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Be alert and be on guard, we must. And we need to be constantly reminded about this. That's why church would gather together once a month during services around the Lord's table and partake the Lord's Supper. I wonder now, if you haven't already noticed, that all the three essential elements of a betrothal ceremony, namely the purchase price, the new covenant, and the cup of the covenant, are all present in the Lord's Supper. In the Passover meal, at the Lord's Supper, through this bread and wine, Jesus proposed to his church, Jesus betrothed with his church, with us. Our Lord Jesus used this bread to represent that he is going to lay down his life for the church. His life, represented by the bread, is the purchase price. Can anyone ask for a purchase price higher than the very life of the Son of God? That's not possible. Afterwards, Jesus mentioned about this new covenant in his blood. He signed off, he sealed this covenant with his own blood. And lastly, he raised a cup of wine to represent that the betrothal ceremony between him and his church is perfectly completed. Through the price of his life, the covenant by his blood, and the lifting up of the cup. 
Jesus entered into a marriage relationship with us. So even though he had to leave to prepare a dwelling place for us, we must not be afraid. Our hearts must not be troubled. He is coming back and takes us to be with him that we also may be where he is. So next week when you come together to the Lord's table, be reminded that we are in a betrothal covenant with our Lord Jesus, that we are a community faithfully waiting for his return. When we take the bread and the cup, then we will once again declare, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire besides you. Let us all pray together. God the Father, we thank you for your incarnate Son, Jesus, that in our weakness, our sinfulness, you still chose us to be his bride. We pray to you that in your mercy and grace during this Advent season, that we will be able to insist to be the faithful bride of Christ. As we await his return, may your Spirit help us to keep ourselves so that upon Christ's return, we can present ourselves to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blameless, but holy and blameless. For we pray in the name of your precious Son, our coming groom, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.